Every day we hoistle in at Pilots and Pictards Podcast. Welcome to the Pilots and Petards Podcast. This is Drew, the pragmatic cyclops of this podcast. And I'm Jimbo, the anti-millennial, existentialist, pilot critic, and Kenny of the podcast. And I'm the motherfucking magical Mismo, master of pilots, nobos, spoilers, and now apparently open bars. Hella master of the open bar. <laughs> and we can come back to that, ladies and gentlemen, in the shop I want talk. some shop talk. I want some fafoka. <laughs> okay. Go on, Jimbo. And this is the podcast with nothing much to do about aircrafts, but potentially everything to do with the first episodes of a filmic series. A quick disclaimer. Petard is a word. It is a real word. And petards are bombs. Look it up and read your Shakespeare. It's out there. It's free. So here on the Pilots and Petard podcast, we will be tackling mostly new series each Monday with the occasional throwback pilot. Uh, you can follow our blog and participate in our pre-recording discussions to become Petard famous. Our episodes will be broken up into four parts. Yep, part one is spoiler-free, drives Mo crazy. Part two is hella spoilers, Mo gets out there on the loose, throws out some elbows. Part three, we're going to wander outside the pilot to any dangling threads of interest. This week, uh, Jimbo has a special part three for us. And then part four is our fun part, which this week will include a lot of shop talk. You can go to our website to learn more about us and our podcast. And Pilots and Petards is a proud member of the But Why Though podcast community. Uh, and we'd like to thank today's sponsor, Twitter, for the ad-free listening. Twitter's bullshit on a lot of fronts. But if you want to argue in bad faith with a stranger or just try and reach out to a lot of different people you don't meet in your everyday life slash bubble, try Twitter. So go out and thank a semi-transparent, partially socially responsible media company. <laughs> oh, and when you do that, add at Jimbo Up and add at Pilots and Petards so we can, you know, become more Petard famous. I'm pretty embarrassed that Jimbo has a, a Twitter and I don't. Mo, your life is better off without Twitter, <laughs> but it's okay. So uh, one, one last thing. Uh, fuck you, Crooked Media, uh, for your crooked piece of shit ads. Um, once again, Crooked Media, you you lie like cowards and do not answer our challenges. So, uh, yeah, if you want us to sponsor, if you want to sponsor our show, contact us. Uh, you can choose the show we watch. Or if you just want us to slander your rival, we have no problem doing that. We will do it for money. Second to last announcement. If you enjoyed today's episode you owe us for this ad free listening you can do one of a couple things you can tell someone about our podcast or you can listen to more of our episodes or you can leave us some feedback that's how you pay your debt and our last announcement so today we will be having a interview segment for the dangling threads hopefully this this works out okay unfortunately our our original guest was not able to make it tonight so we are Sticking with the original crew, and then we're going to add in our dangling threads. Petard listeners, join us today as we cast judgment and determine if the groundbreaking LGBT 1980s period drama Pose will be hoisted or not hoisted. That is the question. So guys, let's go ahead and jump into our background on this show. And Mo, we can start with you. Um, what do you know about this show? Where'd you hear about it? What's up? Yeah, so um, I heard about it through a group of friends that all watched it at different times and just were constantly texting about how great it was. So I finally started this series when it was probably like four four episodes in, and I just binge-watched it until it wrapped up its first season. So I'm fully caught up, and I am super subscribed. Uh, what about you, Drew? So um, an all-time fave podcast uh loves this show i love the read oh. i'm going to their live show in denver um i'm in the fourth row 
Really? You're, uh, you should try to ask a question. Oh, uh, no. I will get roasted if I ask a question. Yeah, you will. I know. I want you to get roasted. <laughs> Are you going to be the closest white person? Probably. They might roast you anyway. There's a lot anyways. of white people in Denver. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the Reed loves the show. And, you know, it just it seemed like uh, a little bit intimidating in terms of getting in there and learning about a different culture in a different time. But I'm very happy that we chose it for the show. What about you, Jimbo? I've been looking for non-white guy directors and creators and the pose was one of the shows i found so for me it's not the pose it's just pose sorry pose yes i don't know why i keep saying that it just makes you sound like an old grandpa thank you i'll take that as a compliment the pose jimbo gets on the twitter and yells at people i don't yell at people actually i know you have really pleasant interactions with nice people not all caps no yeah i hate that but uh the creators are white guys but the cast and the main characters definitely fit fit the you know the diversity that i was looking for and the show has good representation and um, i do have a little background on the show we alluded to the creators um this is a ryan murphy produced show um he um and a couple collaborators and this is actually interestingly uh the highest budgeted show he's ever produced uh, more than any of his other shows including american horror story and glee uh, this show has been a success. Uh, the new season will be out next summer. And uh, interestingly enough, the season finale was the highest rated episode of the entire run. And that's always kind of a good sign because it means that people got enthusiastic. Word of mouth worked. You know, Moe's group text uh, is kind of indicative of how this show caught on. So awesome show we're going to talk about today. All right. And Drew's going to hit us with that two sentence summary. So a, a house, you can't see my air quotes, but a house of misfit youth in 1980s New York come alive during decadent underground balls where they show off their fashion sense and flair. When Blanca strikes out to start her own house, will she be able to compete with the more established crews? Tune in to find out if you should give a steaming pile of crap. And Mo, do you want to talk to us about part one? Yeah, so part one of our podcast is spoiler free. We're going to talk about some high moments, some low moments, and just talk about the overall quality of the pilot without giving any, any spoilers away. And this is Mo's favorite part. Love it. favorite part. I'm getting better. I know. It's great, Mo. Um, so now we'll start with some high points, some low points, some in between. And Jimbo, why don't you start us off? I think the storytelling is very strong. We have quite a few main characters, and they're all brought together and tied together extremely well. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that the nice thing is there's a lot of like small character beats for most of the characters. And um, even when a character isn't the main focus of a scene, there's so many ensemble moments that there's just kind of cool stuff happening in the background. So I think there's like really good directing and there's really good nonverbal acting in like the crowd scenes and the group scenes with those paid actors that Mo likes so much. Paid audience. Paid audience, yes. <laughs> I've been thinking about it because I listened to paid audience at least 15 times while I was editing. <laughs> paid audience doesn't make any sense. Do you know what an audience is, Mo? Yeah. Okay. I like it. Okay, let's stick with it. It's just what, aggressive. It's what my partner and I say, and I just think it's funny. It is funny. I don't think anyone will ever know what you're talking about. <laughs> paid audience. They will if they're, if they're loyal Petard listeners. <laughs> Mo, what did you think about um, the storytelling? Ryan Murphy in general just does a really good job of peeling back a story and peeling back a character start to finish. And he does a pretty great job in this pilot of kind of leaving us off at the end with these somewhat complete characters 
with their personalities and ambitions and where they might be going, where they came from. It just kind of all tightly fit into not, I guess not tightly fit because it was a long, longer than average uh, pilot, but I, I think it was beautifully done. Not to mention also just the, the visual parts and the beauty of all of the glamour and what the ballrooms looked like and what 1980s New York looked like. I just thought all that storytelling looked really great. Yeah, Drew, hit, hit us with the ears. We're, I mean, we're transitioning into it perfectly. Yeah, that's one of my high points. Man, the production values were fantastic. There was an office scene with elephant tusks, <laughs> like, above, like, this, like, ornately adorned, like, 1980s, like, Wall Street office. Like, no detail was too small. You know, everyone's clothing was correct. I really enjoyed the production values. And when I said that this was like Ryan Murphy's like most expensive production, it very much showed um, both in casting as well as production values. And that was great. Like there was not a thing out of place. And they had like like road scenes and like big building scenes. So way to way to go for it, FX. I didn't pick up on those elephant tusks, but well, that's a nice touch. I watched it twice. Late 1980s wealth means you can afford elephant tusks in your office on Wall Street or the Upper East Side. Um, amongst other things. Oh, yes. Amongst yes. other things. We'll get to that. No, I just I totally agree and echo that. I love I generally do love period pieces. And when they pay such close attention to all those little details, especially when it's about a community that maybe hasn't had their story told as often, I think. That's probably what motivated the investment in all of these aspects of the pilot. Yeah, that's that's a very strong aspect as well. I'm surprised that wasn't someone's MVP, but they they are definitely telling stories. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when with our this close episode, these are definitely characters that we are not used to seeing up on the screen. At least not projected in like a real manner. And these and these characters are real characters. They're not they're not cliches and they're not the butts of jokes. Who's got a low point? It's gotta be a low point. There's seventy six minutes of this pilot. I think we're looking at high lows. I I wouldn't necessarily call it a low point and and we might come back to this in our quest for the best, but it felt more like a movie to me, and I'm not I'm not sure what to make of that. This was a long pilot. Um, it clocked in around 76 minutes. Um, Jimbo has his hard and fast, no two part pilot rules since Buffy the Vampire Slayer burned us. But this definitely could. I, I imagine at some point if this show gets syndicated, this will be broken up into two, two episodes. This was long. I ended up watching it in like two sittings. I think I watched it in two sittings as well. Same. No, I, I was babysitting while I was watching it. So I definitely broke it up in like three yeah. sittings. <laughs> If it's your baby, Jimbo, that's called parenting, not babysitting. Whatever, man. <laughs> and me and the kid took three sit-downs to watch it. <laughs> little little baby Jimbo is getting exposed to a lot of diverse media. Good for her. Yeah, I, I can't think of another low. I didn't like the dancing. So I've I've let, I've been at the movie theater for one of the Step Up movies, and the, the dancing in the Step Up movies is so awesome. <laughs> the dancing in Pose sucks. It's boring. It's lame. And their glamorous outfits just don't make up for it. You're too vanilla for them, Jimbo. <laughs> That's not even true, man. By the way, coming in three weeks, Jimbo's uh, Step Up Appreciation <laughs> podcast. Step up to the pod. Um, Any loyal listeners, Fitz, who want to be co-host that one, just, you know, Jimbo G'd up on Twitter. No, I will just to stop roasting Jimbo for a second. <laughs> 
Watch out on vanilla, man. I've seen better voguing in real life, for sure. And I've seen better dancing in real life. So I can see what you're saying. But I wouldn't call it boring. I was bored. It wasn't like classically trained hip-hop. Five, six, seven, eight. I'll say this. Like, one person dancing is awkward. And I don't think it matters how good or bad of a dancer they are. Like, I feel like it's a group activity. And so... Uh, I don't know, man. Maybe I'll go back and watch Step Up to the Streets, the sequel to Step Up. I will send you some YouTube videos. Now, granted, the YouTube videos are not going to be from 87, but you can watch people dancing by themselves. They'll just knock your socks off your feet, man. You don't you don't have to dance exactly like people danced in 1986. It's okay to add. And they added a few things, but they didn't add enough. I mean, they definitely could have made it they definitely could have fused in a, some more modern stuff just for aim, entertainment purposes. So that's that. That's my low point is I was just did not care for the dancing scenes. I could have, in fact, I would have preferred them to all be like taken out. And I, because I, I really do like the story. I want to bring it back to one more high point because we might be hitting the end of um, our high lows and whatnot. And um, it's not a spoiler to talk about this character because she was in the two two sentence summary. But Blanca is like our protagonist. You know, like she is like the center of the story. And she just has a monologue at the end of the episode that, like, this actress absolutely nails. There's a couple of really good dialogue pieces throughout um, the the episode. But, you know, about 60 minutes into a 76-minute show, um, she really brings the energy and the heart into it. And I think this monologue towards the end of the episode ties the whole show together and ties the whole chosen family together. And it was really well delivered, really well shot, really well directed. And I think um, that's definitely a high point, which could have been an MVP. But I still just want to shout it out right here. What do you guys think of that scene? I think we should come back to it in part two. Absolutely. I'm fine with that. I'll just add two other things. I think we didn't explicitly state, but the themes in the show are excellent. And one of the ones for sure that we haven't talked about is the AIDS epidemic. And Drew just kind of talked about family. And there's just... There's a lot of really good themes in this episode. I would say maybe more so than, and granted they had 75 minutes, but more so than any of our other pilots. Yeah, I think the storytelling did a lot of the political lifting. You know, like, this is definitely a political show. Um, it's about, like, race and class and gender and, yeah, the HIV epidemic. Um, but it never felt preachy, you know? And it never felt like it was, like, intentionally going out to, like, teach a lesson about, like, equality and, like, taking people as they come. It was very entertaining. So I will say that the show did a great job of weaving the lesson and the more kind of serious themes into a highly entertaining narrative. It's hard to tell if it's because they are such, if they are such unique, not unique themes, I don't want to say unique, but just underrepresented to the point where, I mean, Jimbo, you said what drew you to even this ever hearing about this show was that you were looking for that and looking for unique themes and themes that people aren't always talking about. Um, so I think that might have to do with why all three of us love that so much and what they were talking about, what they're trying to get at. I'm going to toss out one more just because I think it needs to be said and we don't have to discuss it. The dialogue is very strong. Like these characters, all of them, they, you know, they have a lot of snappy comebacks and just even really cool metaphors. And disses. <laughs> yeah. The disses are on point. Yeah, I loved it. Yes. Oh, so much shade. They read each other really hard. There's also a lot of great cross-class and cultural dialogue. 
you know, like when these different worlds collide, um, it's great because, I mean, things are like awkward or they're powerful or they're dramatic or they're funny. But every time like worlds collide or characters collide, you're right. Like the dialogue is fantastic. I always like talk these shows up like throughout the show and I'm like, this is going higher on the queue for B than I first thought. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of feeling that as well. Okay, so let's move on. All right, MVPs. Hoisters, we're moving into our MVP. This is the most valuable part of the pilot. Yeah, let me let me get my my sharp elbows out. Let me make some space for myself. Fuck y'all. I liked the dance audition a lot. Um, I don't know what it's like to audition to get into like a modern dance studio in the 1980s. I thought that the character, like, uh, is his name Damien? Da- Damon. Damon. Yeah, I thought Damon's character did a lot of very good acting in that scene even if you weren't super down for the dancing itself and the moves itself although i thought the moves were cool um i thought that he told a story and i thought that he emoted in a very cool way both like nervousness and energy and skill but not being like sure of yourself so i think there was like a lot more storytelling to that dancing sequence and i think it was very very cool they just stuck with it it wasn't like highlights and like fast cuts it was like that was a whole song and i think for me, at least, like I get really, really, really freaked out about dancing, you know, especially in front of other people. And so like my nightmare is like just by myself dancing for like three influential people. And so like I kind of like identify with his nervous energy. So I thought that was very cool. That was the only dancing I liked. When I said the dancing, I did not mean his dancing. I meant the genre dancing of the show. I actually really enjoyed that scene for the same reasons that, that, that you said. I mean, he really, his acting was, was excellent. He sold his nervousness. We're kind of bouncing into part two, but yeah. Mo, what do you think about that dance scene? It was Whitney. It was Whitney. What I loved most about this scene wasn't the dancing. It was watching Blanca come in and do her thing. And that relationship gets established really well and really beautifully and powerfully. Uh, the instructor and her her interest in Damon. Let's save it for part two. Ugh. This is why MVP should be in part two. That has been noted. <laughs> this doesn't get cut out. Please tell Jimbo. Because it's <laughs> how annoying is it that we always say, let's wait for part two. Wait, man. It's annoying. We're talking about the quality of the show. It's, okay, it's your most valuable part. <gasps> Okay, fine. Mo, that's going to be on our t-shirt. I'm going to I'm going to piggyback off of Drew's because I think the scene right after Damon's dance scene, him That's a spoiler. Can you wait for part 2, please? Because that's a spoiler. <laughs> no one knows. I'm not saying what happened. You just said he got in <laughs> Yeah, Jimbo, you kind of just did say what happened. What? Oh, whatever. Okay, sorry, sorry. Just saying Part two, everyone. Part two. That is a spoiler. Okay, let me start over. Let me start over. My bad. Mo's right. Okay. Mo's right. I'll keep, keep that this in. in. This is gold. Hoisters, Mo is right. <laughs> one for Jimbo, one for Mo, zero for Drew. We're still waiting for Drew to be right about something oh. <laughs> on the official stat damn, tracker. Yeah, true. Which so far has been kept by one thing. Okay, get in there. Get in there, two Jimbo. things. Two things now. So there, there's a scene after Damon's dance. And it's a very strong, powerful scene. And I would say it's right up there in the This this Is Us episode when Jack loses the baby as far as emotional appeal. I would right up there as far as maybe the strongest or second strongest scene emotionally that I've seen since we started our adventure into Pilots and Petards. I, I like that scene a lot, too. Um, I think it's well acted. And I think that, um, you know, it's kind of like it's the scene that, like, turns it into a mini movie. You know, because I think that we'll talk about this 
as we analyze the pilot, but I think the fact that it doesn't wrap up, but it just has a nice little happy ending, you know, and I don't think that means that it's over. I just think that means that it's pleasant. And for a show that had a lot of challenging social issues and a lot of like real hardcore things happen, I liked it because I was like, oh, you're left with the impression that there's a lot more potential that each character has to reveal. It's positive. And it's nice to speak about these stories with a positive tone. I think too many times if they are discussed, it's depressing and sad and not colorful in this way. Yeah, and Mo and Mo can probably come back to this as well, but I'm sure we're going to see plenty of, of tragedy throughout season one. Mo, what's your MVP? My MVP was, a, was Pray Tell. MC Pray Tell. MC Pray Tell. And he pretty much narrates the entire, all the scenes with the ballrooms and the costumes and the categories. And he kind of dictates and says that, um, or decides that for, for this whole time. So he just does really well at being a hype man for the whole crowd. He's really great. And roasting the, the contestants when they don't do great or building them up when they just nail the category. He's just great. He makes the entire dynamic between all the characters exciting, both in the ballroom scenes and outside the ballroom scenes when he's just their friend sipping on tea and discussing, you know, that night's costume or... Or, or tea. Yeah, or literal tea. Uh, yeah, he's great. Oh my God. MC Pretel was a high, high point for me. And I knew Mo was going to talk about him. He has the best lines. He has the best delivered lines. Can I read one one of his lines? Yeah, of course you can. Please. Okay, so um, one one of the characters is kind of interrupting him while he's at work, and so he tells her, "I don't come to your job knocking dicks out your mouth." <laughs> yep. This is the way this dude speaks, dude. He is awesome, <laughs> uh, and he commands so much respect in the room. Yes, he is a mentor, man, but he's like a wise mentor, right. unlike maybe a couple of our other mentors. Like that quote might make him seem like a vulgar classless man but he's actually he's vulgar he's vulgar, but he's but... regal and sophisticated at the same time yeah there's like charisma like dripping off his performance like there's a reason he's the mc of like the ballrooms there's a reason that he's like the influential figure in all their lives and also he's like just the pep talk man you know it's like i'm gonna say some real shit to you when you need to hear it and then i don't care what your reaction is because i gotta go do other stuff that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, he's the one keeping it real, but not Dave Chappelle keeping it real. He's like... <laughs> he knows when to stop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's keep it productively real. That's a really good MVP, Mo. All right, so let's move on. Now, Hoisters, the moment before the moment we've all been waiting for. Are we going to rewatch this show? And for Drew and I, are we going to watch this show? Go ahead, Mo. Just quickly get it out of the way. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait for season two. Cannot wait. And I'm, I was so excited. They didn't make that announcement that it was picked up for season two until the episode before the finale. Drew? I, I bought the pilot on iTunes, and so the rest of the season could be mine in non-HD for $11. <laughs> I think I'm going to get it. I'm between shows right now. I watched the, the last 40 minutes of Thor Ragnarok again last night while I was grading papers. So um, it's highly watchable, Jimbo. So yeah, I am going to watch and I'm going to report back. I'm going to be accountable on the show. Lovely. I might. I, I would say if I had to watch 
a series that we've done so far tomorrow, like if that's if I had to do it like tomorrow, I think I would choose Pose. Did you watch it with Miss Nomalous? I know Baby Jimbo watched. Nope. She was at work. It is good. It's fun to watch with the couple. I, I, I watched it with my mom because these themes are very foreign to her. So I thought it would be nice to, you know, so if you have, hey, Zero, you should get Zero in on it with you, Jimbo. Oh. I do not think Zero is going to watch this show, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I would love for Zero he, to watch this show. He might watch it now just as a challenge. I'm making it a point challenge. to mention Zero all the time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Zero, if you're, I know you're listening. We miss you. I thought it'd be a good time to mention you. <laughs> Maybe I'll watch the the pilot again with Tori. There you go. And Honest John, since we haven't mentioned you yet, we're still waiting for the bling, sir. You can send it either to myself or Drew. Jimbo, what's up? What's next? So now, hoisters, the moment you've all been waiting for. To hoist or not to hoist? That is the question. Is this pilot a steaming pile of crap and deserves to be hoisted on its own petard? A.K.A. <sighs> a bad pilot? Or... An improvised explosive device by the French. Or is it a not hoist? Is it a good pilot? And we don't need to waste a lot of your time. This is a good pilot, not hoist. Big not hoist. Not a pot, not a petard in sight. Nope. Not hoist. So hoisters by unanimous decision, the pilot episode of Pose titled Pilot is a not hoist. And Mo, you... Think you're so slick. Last week I'm editing, and Mo gives a unanimous decision for a crab man that won by split decision. So hoisters, I want everyone to know oh. that that our crab man last week was a split decision crab man. Mo got in there trying to be slick. I forgot. Uh, that's Petard's throne. It's Petard's throne. <laughs> who was it? I can't even. Who, who Mo, I'm taking sunny? a point from you. Okay, you're now one and one. On the official, on the uh, official stat, stat checker, you messed up, man. Unofficial. You messed up. Let's get Marshall in here because he's a <laughs> yeah, statistician we... now, apparently. Hopefully, he's a listener too. <laughs> he's listened to us mm, on it. a road trip. Yeah, yeah. Really? You know, we got him from like North Carolina wow. to New Jersey. Yep. Wow. All right. Feel honored. We got Lulu. Yeah, we uh, sure did. From from Southern Florida to Virginia. That's no joke either. Okay, part two. <laughs> We're going to spoil everything in this section. We will spoil everything in this section. That's true. <laughs> so part two, we are going to step into a filmic analysis and interpretation. Spoilers. Spoilers galore. Spoiler-tastic. First section of part two is going to be our Crab Man Award. This will go to a character with a small role that is giving way more than they are taking. Typically, very little amount of screen time, very huge impacts. So let's just dive in there. Damon's mother is a crab woman for sure. She, and now we can talk about spoilers, Mo, you're free. She is, for one, there's kind of a twist. We expect her to, as a mother figure, to kind of maybe comfort Damon, to maybe get his back. And she does not. She she throws him out. She gives him the, like, God or get out. And he gets out. He You know, he's he's abandoned by his mother, his family. And so that's that, that's crab woman performance, man. That scene was powerful. It's a lot of storytelling in a small in a small role. How about you, Mo? I think because I've seen the series, everyone has a straw, a big part in my mind. Damon's mom comes back. No, that's why I think that's a really good one. But Drew, you can say you're a crab man because he definitely plays a big part. Yeah. So my initial crab man thought was the beak, 
The beak is on the loose. James Vander Beek turning in a very strong performance. Yeah, he's a total Trumper dick in that in this doing role. some yayo <laughs> with some elephant tusks in the background. Oh. He lays it down strong. I mean, he's I I would say especially for a seventy five minute pilot, he he had a, a very crabby performance, but I don't think he tops Damon's mom. Well, here's the thing too. He's listed as a series regular, so I was going to get a, a you know game time decision from you guys. So this this is just me calling out some love for Dawson being a different kind of fuckboy in this uh, a much more destructive one, perhaps. But uh, no, if I'm picking a non Dawson um crab man i want to call out the little cronies of house abundance like the little shit talkers what it doesn't be singular unless they're twins it needs to be singular they also play a big role later i'm putting i'm putting an end to this to this crab cronies nonsense they are sentient which has so far been our only indicator you keep moving them goalposts jimbo sentient sentience was all that was required no we've been telling moat that she has to choose one crab man for like five weeks in a row now and now we're just going to give up on it i don't think so all right then i want to pick i want to pick the house abundance crony who tells her to go back and cook bitch yes okay that's that's a good one because that's such bullshit that's such a like that's such a thing that you know like that blanca's right you know lecture's being an asshole that was candy yeah okay candy but when bystanders get your back it doesn't matter who's right or wrong like when the crowd goes against you it's such a shitty feeling and like that's the thing like blanca is obviously being mistreated blanca is obviously the one with the ideas but she's never gonna get her due because the cronies best exemplified by this crab crony um (laughs) are doing it like that's such a universal thing like you hate it when like you say some shit in middle school and everyone else is like oh (laughs) fuck that yeah, you were expecting someone to get on her side in that scene, but she really walked out of that fancy-ass loft all on her own, knowing that she's about to rent some shitty flea-ridden apartment. Like, she just left furs and rugs for that. There's a lot of bullying going on as well. Yeah. Yeah, like, there's all that glamorous, but you know what? It's not that glamorous of a community. Like, they will like they will eat you up in a second. Well, Electra has... She has power, man. She's like the black trans Aunt Lid- Aunt Lydia. Holding down other folk. I mean, she's but she's like, great. She's not as oppressive. Electra doesn't make Blanca stay against her will. Like, when she leaves, she just talks shit. Like, no one, she doesn't pluck out Blanca's eyeball. Not yet, man. It's only in the pilot episode. Well, in the pilot episode of Handmaid's Tale, that did happen. So. Alright, so she's like a, like a half a step below. So hold on, who's our crab man? Let, let's move on. Come on, Mo, come to my side. Is it a crab crony or a crab mother? I'm gonna pick Damon's mom. All right. Yeah, of course. All right, Drew, you, you coming over to the winner's side or not? You gonna take another loss? Join the in crowd, man. Come on, join the in crowd. Quit being an electro, bro. I, that's what I, exactly my point here, dude. I'm about to poke your eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> that's more Lydia like, but okay. Um, yeah, I can get behind that. That's a good performance and. Yeah, it's a small one. I had this weird feeling. They're, they don't physically resemble each other, but I had this weird feeling when they mentioned that, like, Blanca had been on her own since she was 17 and Damon was getting kicked out. I was like, are these, like, is this, like, some kind of storytelling device where the shows are converging? But the physical appearance was not close enough. I thought the same thing, actually. By unanimous decision, Damon's mom is going home with the crab man. <laughs> we got our first crab mom. No, we have we had another crab mom. 
into the effing world, we had a crab mom. Ah, you're right. Okay. Wow, good memory. That was like episode like 14. I do all the editing. I hear everything we say five times. <laughs> I think it does. Okay. Uh, Jimbo, you want to jump into some literary analysis? Yeah, let's just jump into the one you just mentioned. I actually thought because because Blanca is a trans woman, I actually thought that, that maybe that was them until she walked up on him. Oh, that's an interesting storytelling device, and it has been used in like other shows and other movies, and it's effective, and it's a cool way to um, mess with the time. Because like literally, right when Blanca was walking up on him, I thought I was like, "Is this going to be like this is us?" And is Jimbo going to resent it? Um, but it was not like this is us. Yeah, so I don't. <laughs> no, yeah, it's funny. We all thought the same thing. I felt bad after. And we've been had by that before. Let's say more about about Blanca. There's. There's something that I find extremely intriguing, the fact that she defines her success as a person by being a mother of a house. And kind of everything we see about Electra in the House of Abundance is in a negative light. And so I'm kind of, I mean, I get it. She's about to die. and She thinks that's the only way to kind of like keep her le- legacy alive. I mean, is that like enough of a reason? Because I don't like it. For Blanca to go out on her own? I do buy it as a reason. I've I've read and heard that people have like quote unquote moments of clarity, you know, after near death experiences or after they get those things. And so I mean, I th- I could see that moment as being um, a turning point for Blanca, especially because like what we see from my failed crab nominee was just like shittiness, you know, like she was kind of existing or surviving with Electra. She wasn't thriving. And Mo's MVP tells her time to find a dream. So our wise pray tell tells her time to find a dream. But but like my thing is, why is her dream to be Electra? That's that's my problem. I think her dream is beyond just wanting to be the next Electra. I think she wants to break the cycle that she sees happening to people like her, like young people and not and so that they don't end up like her HIV positive. And, you know, maybe she got into we don't know what her past is. But to me, it seems like she wants to be a, a genuinely create her own family and be a good mother and give them the love and attention and support that they need to maybe prevent them from making some mistakes that she made. Yeah. One thing I've noticed, especially like becoming a parent and like thinking about my own childhood is I think that people respond to their upbringing or they respond to like their parents in like almost like one of two ways, like either you like lean into it and you become almost a reflection of like the way that you were raised or you like become critical of things that you disagreed with from your childhood. And then those are the things that you want to correct. Like those are like things that you like kind of rebel against. So I could definitely, from my own experience, I can understand Blanca wanting to be a better mother than she sees Electra being and that being a motivator because like, I think that is a strong motivation for parents and for like family figures to want to, not make the mistakes that their parents made. And it kind of seems like Blanca has both been rejected by her biological family, as well as now her kind of like um, ballroom family. So I could see that being a big motivator for her. You know, I thought of animal farm and any other people that, that overthrow a oppressive regime and then replace it with just as oppressive of a regime. That's kind of how I saw it. I, I was just thinking, Oh, this is Animal Farm, and she's going to be indistinguishable from the pigs and the humans by the end of the story. I don't want to spoil it, but... Well, don't spoil it, though. I'm going to watch it. 
But um, I push back on that because I, I feel like that's a different dynamic because I think an animal farm as well as in some of those revolutions, like you have people coming up together, you know, like Trotsky and Lenin or Snowball and Napoleon where like they are co-conspirators or they're co-leaders. And then one does betray both their co-leader as well as like the spirit of the revolution. I don't see Electra and Blanca as coming up together. I don't see them as like forming its own house. Like it feels like Electra is clearly a subordinate. And she wants to get on her own. So I don't necessarily see how... Or Blanca is a subordinate. Or yeah, Blanca is the subordinate to Electra, And so I don't necessarily see them getting in that dynamic. Because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of seems like we're going to see other houses. And I don't think we need to assume that all the houses are toxic like Electra is. It seems like Blanca's is supportive. So far, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, Drew. Yeah. Spoil it, Mo. I'm just going to say, just Blanca's great, and even just from the pilot, I didn't get the intention that it was going to be a... Yeah, she forces Damon to go and find his dream. Yeah, the, exactly. The minute she went out there and put her neck on the line, t- getting him his audition, and th- that was already set her apart from Electra in my mind, in the pilot. And MC Pray Tell, you know, he was dropping those truth bombs. You know, more kids are coming to the city every day and like these are the families they choose because their families have rejected them so i won't spoil it for drew's sake because i do want him to watch it wait wait here i'm gonna take my earbud out ready say some stuff to jimbo if you want no that's fine let's move on what's next yeah get in there mo can we talk about then the opening scene and how fantastic and unrealistic it was but in the best way possible when they uh when they steal all the jewels from the museum (laughs) That was great. That was really fun cinematography. And then I think, I think that this show is more grounded than Glee, where like Glee lived in that weird in between phase of like, is this actually happening? Is this fantasy? Is this reality? <laughs> um, so I think that like they captured a little bit of that playfulness with this one. Yeah, it was definitely a really fun, visually entertaining way to pull us into this world. That was a great opening. I watched that and I was like, damn, this is wild. Yeah. <laughs> They're just up in there like stealing Queen Elizabeth the First. Like, yeah. It was very much like ridiculous, but at the same time, it was a lot of fun. And you know, it kind of makes sense. Like they're not going to press charges because the last thing you want the public to, to know is that all your famous old classy, fancy royal outfits were <laughs> were worn by a bunch of drag queens at some ball. <laughs> I know. I like the throwaway line where it's like, why do I have to explain it again? And I'm like, nice, nice storytelling there. <laughs> and just Electra dominated everything in that scene. She's just, I get what I want. We need to win this category and then we'll figure it out. Who doesn't ever, who doesn't want to touch everything when they're in a museum? I like that a lot. I when I watched it again, just the close-ups of like the people looking at the pieces, you know, the actors and like which ones they looked at. Um, on the second watch, it was very cool. That was an awesome scene, though. So I didn't know where to squeeze that in, but I just really wanted to talk about it. So I think one thing we're going to talk about with the Q for the B is that this show is very reminiscent of Glee, um, which was also a Ryan Murphy show. You know, like outcasts, outsiders finding a creative outlet, being put up against some um, obstacles, but ultimately, you know, triumphing through their common bond and through, you know, their spirit. Like, it's it's not a new concept. It's not a new idea. 
But I think what makes the show really special is the representation and the story that is being told via that cliche idea. So, I mean, my question is, um, when we watch things which are giving like better representation with classical ideas, like Black Panther is another one, um, I think, where they're not really breaking new ground with the story, but it's a different perspective. Yeah, different perspective telling that story. Should we give it like more credit? You know, than if it was like necessarily like the same story told through the same cast and the same lens. What do you guys think about that? I think it deserves more credit if it's done well. I think because Ryan Murphy did such a great job on his delivery, he was so careful in who he consulted. He gained the trust and respect from the community that he was trying to, whose stories he was trying to tell. Is that what the point you're getting at, Drew? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mo. You're right. The care and um, the intention that he used, I think, elevates the story. What about you, Jimbo? Yeah, I, I can follow up with what Mo said, and maybe I'm just restating what, what she said. But I feel like it would be really easy for someone to just recycle a story by just saying, oh, instead of telling the story with a straight white guy, let's have it be a trans woman of color. And that's another way to maybe tell a different story. But for someone to take it serious and actually do those characters justice makes a difference so no i think there's a debate now um in pop culture um this question of like diversity for diversity's sake and i i i kind of push back on the premise you know because i think there are a lot of perspectives and stories not being told and i think that's where it gets fresh like this reminds me of like this close like this close was a buddy comedy but i think what elevated it was it was a buddy comedy that we just hadn't seen before you know, and it's like a nice way to like look to be a fly on a wall of like a different world and a different perspective and a different view. And so that's what I think elevates it. Although, yeah, like, you know, we talked off mic about how Glee like a lot of the, this show is, but I don't think that's a bad thing because I think that I don't know, I don't I don't see new stories being told. I'm I'm hardly ever surprised by any fiction I watch these days. And I would say just to, just to dive a little bit outside of the pilot. It's not really the story. It's not. It's not what happens. It's like how it happens. the The story is really about the characters. It's not seeing something that's never been done before. It's seeing. It's seeing their story. It's seeing how they get to wherever they end up, or why they get to wherever they end up. Exactly. And then I, I think this transitions into the last thing that I want to discuss, and that's kind of the lost souls slash identities. We have some really interesting, you know, going back to our big themes, we have some characters, they're all lost and they're all struggling with their identity in one way or another. And some of them can pass and some of them can't. And I think that's kind of interesting as well. We have a character we haven't brought up at all yet. Stan Boss, Stan Bowes. He's very much lost himself, except he's a white male and he can pass and he has a family. And, you know, he has we have another character we haven't mentioned, Angel. He has everything Angel wants, and it seems that he's not happy with his life. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting viewpoint character for, like, another aspect of the 80s and another aspect of, like, culture. And I think um, when we talked about, like, different parts of society colliding, um, definitely his scenes with Angel uh, were some of the most compelling um, in terms of learning about this area. And I think in a different show, like you were saying, that had done less work you know or like tried to approach it with like less nuanced view would have made him like the viewpoint character what's the name stan mm -hmm. like you said stan yeah i think that like a less like a not ryan murphy 
you know, or a more conventional take on this show, maybe at a different network would have made Stan the viewpoint character and would have made things from like Stan's point of view, but then it wouldn't have been as unique or insightful as I think it ended up being. Like maybe just to discuss him a bit more, he gets asked a, a question during his interview with, with Fuckboy Dawson <laughs> and he asks him like, what do you want in life? And then he goes and gets a prostitute, a, a trans prostitute, takes her to a fancy hotel room. And then he asks her what she wants in life. And it's kind of interesting. Like, does Stan want her or does he want her life? Or And then he kisses her and he goes home and brushes his teeth like someone just took a shit in his mouth. His impact in the show is, I think, extremely fascinating. He's definitely a character I'm curious about. Yeah, and I like that you used him as the center example for a, a, a lost soul or someone whose identity is confusing. because. I feel like when he's with Angel or that community of trans women or LGBT, whatever, they're super counterculture and they are misfits, but I don't think they doubt who their identity is. Like they're, they are feel really strongly that they're women. They just aren't accepted and treated like women. But I think that's like planted them down in who they are and who their identity is pretty strongly. And then you have, and they did that without anything, right? Without any, support from society or without even a place for them to exist within society. And then here comes preppy white boy who likes trans women and is sexually attracted to them and doesn't know who the fuck he is. He has everything, what you would think you would want, like you said, exactly. But it's also interesting just to see that dynamic because people like Stan with that privilege can dabble. They have a space to explore their identities in the space that's being held by women, by women like Angel and Blanca without having to bear the brunt of being exiled or being treated differently. Like they use it as their playground. Do you know what I mean? Like they built this safe space for themselves, but then they kind of have to leave it open for these white rich men to come in to, for, for different reasons. It's survival, right? I'm sure Angel needs money. Uh, Electra has what she has because of her rich white sugar daddy who likes a trans woman and that becomes a whole different storyline which i won't get into but it's just it's interesting too in that respect hoisters there's there's a lot more that we could discuss this this pilot is well worth your time yes it is there's a lot my favorite part listeners the quest for the best or put it anywhere guys part of the show so we have a list of every pilot that we have watched thus far it's live Yep. One thing we do on the show is we like to take the pilot that we just watched and we put it right there into the existing list. Uh, Mo often just wants this segment to end quickly. So she's like, yeah, yeah, put it anywhere. We had a couple of feelings about this and we have taken some some constructive criticism and we've had most of our quest for the best conversation off mic. So we have a range that we're going to look at. This is a very good pilot. And the range that we're looking at is somewhere between um, number 11. My name is Earl. And number seven, Dexter. We've decided that it's not going to be above Dexter. It's not going to be below My Name is Earl. So what are you guys thinking? What are your thoughts? For for our listeners, are we going to knock it for being too long or for being more structurally like a movie? Those are the same thing. Sure. Like, are we going to give it a knock for that? Because if not, I think we put it in the new no- number eight above Handmaid's Tale. I want to say no, it's not a knock. And I want to say that because of execution. Um, I was not bored. I did watch it over two sessions, but when it was over, I just kind of felt good. And I was like, I'll watch the next one. Like, this is very cool. So I think that if I had been more 
um, fatigued with the show, if I'd been tired of the characters, if I had just been kind of like, I wish this was over. Um, 76 minutes is a long time, but I don't think that we should knock it for being a well-told story. I agree. And I, I wasn't surprised because I've seen Ryan Murphy's stuff before. I feel like all his American Horror Story pilots are always also really long. I'm cool with it. That was that was my only thing, as I already talked about more more than once now in, in the show, is it felt more like a movie to me, which isn't necessarily a low point. I could go above Handmaid's Tale just because I think that the shows are comparable in that they both have like heavy um, themes and they tackle really interesting and important issues. But like Handmaid's Tale was a downer and Pose ends on a positive note. And I told you guys, like, Crazy Rich Asians was in my petardar. Maybe it should be in it again. I like I like stories that make me happy. I like stories that make me feel good, a little hopeful. And Handmaid's Tale does not end on, like, a hopeful note. All right. Well, I don't agree with that being a reason to knock it, but I'm, I'm definitely cool with putting it above Hand- Handmaid's Tale. Where you at, Mo? I think Handmaid's Tale is a little bit better. All right. Well, convince us. Yeah. Convince us, Mo. <laughs> you guys always force me to do this part. I guess the quality of the acting was equally great and the dialogue was equally great, probably just because of the dramatics and the intrigue of Gilead in Handmaid's Tale might have been a little bit more, the pull might have been a little stronger than the pull to see. Anytime I try to convince you all, I don't convince myself. That's a, that's a bad sign, Mo. That's not a good sign at all. Yeah, that, that's a terrible sign. I, I think we have a new number eight. Yeah, the pull for this counterculture ballroom scene is also really strong after this pilot you want to know what's going on because there's nothing wrong with having fun or having good feelings like something is not inherently more artistic because it's a downer yeah you're right drew so number eight right above handmaid's tale we we do have some some conflicts about uh you know numbers like 12 through 20 but i feel like we have a really solid top 10 top 10 is looking good part three So that will transition to uh, Jimbo's interview. Um, We went out on Twitter, our today's sponsor of the show, and we really wanted to find um, a trans woman of color and get their perspective on Pose. We went through um, a couple talks with a couple different people. Uh, People were very generous with their contacts, very generous with their time. But due to some scheduling issues and due to a little laryngitis, we couldn't get our original um, guest to come be a co-host of this show and talk with us about Pose, but that person did hook us up with another person that Jimbo is going to interview. So let's kick on over to that interview. Oysters, we have not completed the interview for part three, Dangling Threads. We will finish that, complete that, and upload that as a second part of episode 45, The Pose We think it is important to have the correct voices represent our dangling threads for this episode of Pose. So stay tuned, stand by. We will get that episode up as soon as possible. Thank you. Every day we hoistle in. And we are going to continue with part three. We are going to jump into our Petardar. The Petardar is our recommendations for our listeners based off of our viewing experience of the pilot Pilot. <laughs> um, so an obvious petardar choice is Paris is Burning. Um, it's a documentary d- directly about 
the experiences of trans people in Paris, uh, but also talks, delves into, um, like drag culture and that whole scene and voguing and the birth of that, um, during the late 80s period where HIV was becoming a pretty strong epidemic. Um, so it's a, it's a really good documentary. I would highly recommend that one. And Middlesex. I haven't read it in a long time, but for me, that was one of the first books or first introductions or stories that I ever had, um, ever been exposed to about intersex people and their experiences. Um, and then the next, my next Petardar, if you love Ryan Murphy, if you have a strong stomach and you don't get too scared, America, all of the American horror stories, particularly season three, Coven, they're really great. I really like them. How about you all? Cool. So I have a couple. Um, Glee, especially seasons one through three. Um, I, I just have a fervent wish that Glee had ended at, after season three, but that's okay. Highly underrated, but a huge part of my Peace Corps experience was The Glee Project, where it was a reality television show that Ryan Murphy was on. And Ryan Murphy had a couple MC pray tell moments, you know, throwing some shade on some people and like being very honest. Um, but as a really fun little show, and I don't even know if it's streaming on anything, but find it, find it on, um, a lot of the music videos they made are on YouTube. Uh, I think that something you could revisit as like an early example of like learning about, um, maybe like ballroom culture, maybe trans culture was like rent. Um, I think might have been a lot of people's introduction to it. Although I don't know enough about the character Angel to tell, um, what, um, Angel's identity was, but I think that might have been like maybe my first introduction to, um, that type of culture and popular media. And then finally, um, when we're talking about the HIV epidemic, um, and the band played on is still a really, really good book with just like two parts of it that have been kind of debunked. Like you should probably ignore the parts about the Canadian steward who is identified as a quote unquote patient zero. That idea has been widely debunked, um, as a legitimate theory, but all the stuff about Ronald Reagan and the CDC letting tens of thousands of gay men, gay Americans die is still absolutely true. And, you know, the entire trajectory of HIV and AIDS would be vastly different if the United States government had given the CDC $3 million to study it. But they didn't. Mostly gay men. Sorry. <sighs> Jimbo, where you at? I, I have a couple books I'm going to recommend. Galileo's Middle Finger is overall absolutely terrible book. But the first couple chapters are really interesting and give some really great information as to intersex and just some conditions as far as what doctors are doing and making choices for parents historically, I think is well worth it as far as it talks about how people that are born with both sexes and a lot of parents would never even know. And the doctor would make that decision without them just kind of on the spot. And that was the standard operating procedure. And so you have a lot of these, you have a lot of people where the doctor just makes a birth time decision, decides someone's fate. And then later on in life, when they hit puberty, they just, you know, find out that they were the wrong sex. And so that just just for that aspect, the book is is well worth you know reading the first few chapters, and then I would give up on it very quickly after that. The next book I want to recommend is an excellent book, and I learned a great amount from this book. It's called "The Man Who Wasn't There," and it's investigations into the strange new science of the self. And just anyone that's interested in identity and even like why we are who we are, and just understanding these these really odd disorders and, I, and i'm not saying that being trans is a disorder i just think this book will give you a great insights into maybe why we are the way we are and how 
we can lose our sense of self through a number of different aspects. And I think if you read this book, you would have a better understanding of maybe someone that is not like you. Part four. All right, horses. And so now we're moving into the fun part of the show. We are doing a a preseason expedition match, Drew and Mo Petard trivia. We're you know we're going to keep Mo sharp. She is our number one contender, and maybe we'll try and get Jacob Williams on soon so Mo can bring that Petard title home. <laughs> Drew's buzzard is going to go like this. Buzz. And Mo's buzzard is going to go like this. Work. Now, here's how it's going to work. As, as I mentioned, a little unconventional. The first question is going to be a somewhat easy-ish question. I'm, you've both been warned. Whoever wins that point, I'm going to give first opportunity to answer question two. Question two will be a 20-second essay answer. Oh. Best answer wins. Wow, wow. Do you both understand the parameters of this, of this petard trivia match? Yes, but the first one is a free answer, not like multiple choice. I will award a point if I have to go to true or false. Okay, so hopefully you guys can answer it. If not, we'll uh, keep getting closer and closer until we get an answer. Everyone's on the same page? Yes. Work. Question number one. What does Blanca say about Prince Charming in the pilot episode? Buzz. Drew. He's just some fairy tales. It doesn't exist. Mo, do you have a more precise answer? Nope. Mo... Watched the episode a couple months ago. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't fair. I'm going to say that Blanca says the thing about Prince Charming is he is made up. Nice try, Mo. Drew's going to get that point. So Drew will have (laughs) home court advantage for the second question. Okay, so so Drew will be the first one to answer. All right. This is a two-part question, so Drew has not won yet. Okay. So I don't get to buzz in here. No, Drew gets the first. Drew's the first to answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. You cannot choose Drew's answer. You will get twenty seconds to explain your answer. All right. Here is the question: What's better, the dream or the reality? I'll give you a few seconds to think, Drew. Mo, you can also think, and then Drew, you state your question: What's better, the dream or the reality? And you have twenty seconds to defend your answer. I give this answer from an acknowledged position of a lot of privilege. You know, both societally in terms of my race and my gender. You're wasting your 20 seconds, sir. This is no. No, no, no. I'm not. Because I'm qualifying my answer. This is not part of my answer. I'm going to let it slide for five more seconds. Okay. But in terms of like both economic status, um, generational wealth, um, gender, and race, I'm extremely privileged. (laughs) Extremely. But I'll say this. um, I think it's the reality because just parenthood in general and where I am as an adult is so much more mundane than what my dreams might have been when I was young, but they're very enriching and they're very fulfilling in ways that I couldn't have imagined. So I would say the reality does outstrip the dream because you find out truths and you find out experiences in the reality that you couldn't have possibly conceived of in a dream. And they're very small triumphs and they're very small moments, but they are so much more fulfilling than a dream ever could be. So I I picked the reality and I specifically think of parenthood in terms of that reality. Okay, Mo, you are left with the dream. Explain yourself. I'll give you a few moments to think, and then you have 20 seconds to sell me on the dream. And no qualifiers, Mo, or you'll get yelled at. You you, you can have a qualifier, apparently. I gave Drew his. Might He might not get to keep it. Well, no, I wanted, I wanted to go for the dream anyways, for no particular reason that I don't want to qualify. I like that. 
<laughs> given this this episode and our the protagonist Blanca and House of Evangelista and Angel and all those characters, th- their survival mechanism is through their dreams and the way that they engage with each other and the way that they build each other up towards their dreams is really defining and rewarding in a way that once you hit that reality, you couldn't have realized your dreams to get to that reality without having the constant desire to dream bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that when you're a trans woman in the late 1980s, your dreams are all you have to keep you alive and motivated. Those are some good answers. That's, that, that's tough to choose from. I'm going to, I'm going to have to side with Mo and the trans women on this one, Drew. I think. Yeah, I was going to say, if you pick Mo, that's very fair because she actually grounded her answer in the pilot that we watched. <laughs> yes. And also, <laughs> Drew kind of took the stance of the privileged white woman in the show that chose reality as well. So that was maybe an indicator yeah, that reality right. was was not the best answer. Patty. <laughs> Sided with Patty. <laughs> It's really interesting because because Stan definitely thinks the dream is better than the actual reality. And so, yeah, I guess Mo tying it back to to the pilot will will give her the slight advantage over Drew. But Drew, you had a very solid answer, sir. Much respect. You did. If we want to add I'm the I'm the both the Cyclops and the Patty of this podcast. <laughs> we haven't added any we haven't added any adjectives to our names in a while. Or I haven't. Yeah, so the Patty. Not to be confused with Patty's <laughs> Pub. <laughs> there we go. I like that. <sighs> that was a good Pitar trivia, Mo. You're welcome. I'm getting you more and more prepared. Yes, yes. That was good, Mo. You needed that. That's a nice little warm-up. That was. That was aggressive. And if you can't tell by the plugs we are about to plug, the show is officially over. But if you love us as much as we love us, we're going to stick around for a few more minutes. And get some Fafoka. Next week, we are going to dive into the... The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and this is Jimbo-approved excellent show. I've watched the whole series in a couple days. It was extremely entertaining. I think we might have a pilot breaking our top ten next week. That's that's my prediction, but until we rewatch and discuss it, we'll have to wait. Our official opening and closing music was mixed by Jake Drew. You can find him in the show notes, and he can produce some music for you. Uh, go ahead and follow us on Twitter, at Pilots and Petard to the end in the middle. Find us on Instagram. We post there occasionally. Um, our Facebook group got weird, but hopefully it'll come back. And the, the website is one of the best options for interacting with us. In addition, we're also featured on the butwhythopodcast.com along with some of my movie reviews. So check out any of those things. We want to have listeners and fans, so we will interact with you. We have a very good discussion going on the Handmaid's Tale comment board. We have some very great comments by a very faithful listener, AJ. Keep up the good work, AJ. I need to check that out. Awesome. All right, Mo, anything to plug? Nope. All right, that's how we like to keep it. (laughs) Just Mo's eventual Twitter feed. Instagram? Oh, I guess we have an Instagram. The Abandoned Gram. (laughs) I know, we might need... So now we're getting (laughs) some shop talk. I got to go upstairs soon, so I want to hear about it. Mo is the master of open bars. Jimbo's just uh, exaggerating. I was completely composed. Mo is still known from my wedding as being that lady who danced over a bottle. She didn't. I didn't see her dance over a bottle, but I did that at Drew's wedding, and his band leader, singer, whatever the band, the singer of the band, like shut me down so quick, and I did not appreciate it. 
We <laughs> didn't understand oh, where we were coming from. Yeah, that says more about him than us, Mo. Don't worry about him. <laughs> oh, I think it was the lady band leader because that was way later in the night, wasn't it? It was the lady band leader. I had a great band at my wedding. They were a great band. So, listeners, we, we had a Peace Corps wedding, as in a member of our group of Peace Corps volunteers got married. Mo and I, Mo and I were lucky enough to make the cut list. <laughs> Drew was not. Drew was not so lucky. <laughs> this this was a fancy wedding. There was an open bar, Ooh. and Mo rocked that open bar. That's why Mo has a new qualifier <laughs> under her mastery. She was the first one to cross the line into like drunkardness. And as me, I've been sober for ten years now. I saw it. You know, she was the first one to get wasted. It was pretty early still. <laughs> She rocked it the whole night, man. She didn't stop drinking. She didn't puke. And she woke job, up the bro. next morning, dude, and she and she was on top of her game. We were a little late to brunch because of her, but I mean, you yeah. know, tastefully done. Yeah. Nice. Can we can I hear who who are the Peace Corps uh invites? The crew. We have the praise, the you know, the praise were in there. Oh, fun. They came from Peru. Yep, all the way from Peru. Ho- hopefully they don't mind us sharing their last name. Kremser. Yeah, Crimser. Yeah, we'll just stay, we'll stick with the last names. We had we had Crimser, and then we had Mrs. Nomalous and myself and the magical Miss Mo. Yeah, and I guess Shane got an invite. Joanna got an invite, but they couldn't come. But they couldn't hack it. The magical Miss Mo, master of open bars. At the end of the night, Crank calls the bride. <laughs> just you know, just oh, rocking, man. Yeah, <laughs> get in there, Mo. And you know the bride took it like like a champ. She said, "How did you get my room number?" <laughs> oh, you called her hotel yes. room number. Nice, Mo. Classy. And then she followed it up with, "Don't call back." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we had barely parted ways with the bride like thirty minutes before, so it wasn't like she had escorted herself from the party. Hours before. This was also at 3.30 in the morning. Master of open bars. I feel like the magical Miss Mo is the master of like Peace Corps weddings too. <laughs> you know, making, 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 making memories. memories. It's going to take us three minutes just to, in- just to introduce you. Oh, oh, you mean like all my titles? <laughs> Mo, you used to be the magical mistress of white fragility and zines. So we've I've even evolved. removed some things. She moved on. Yeah, I've evolved. I've moved on from the zines. Dude, our intro took so long today. It took us like eight minutes before we started talking about the highs and lows. Why? Yeah, I had fun. I have no idea. Mm. We were shit talking a little bit too. Yeah. I mean, we did the background. It was a great wedding, though, Drew. We missed you. Oh, thanks. I have wedding questions because I'm I'm judgy about people's weddings and I'm inquisitive. Band or DJ? Band, great band. Fuck yeah, great job, Audrey. Good move. Let's see, buffet or plates brought to you? It was plated. I've never had good plated food at a wedding. This one was pretty good. Well, Jimbo got screwed because. He doesn't eat meat, and it was um, it was very much meat was the focal point. It was chicken and beef. Chicken was terrible. Steak, the steak was supposedly really good. I, I didn't have any. Asparagus was was good. Nice. Uh, what was the um, guess? Like eighty to one twenty, one twenty, one sixty, over two hundred, close to two hundred. Yeah. Wow, that is a fancy wedding. All right, Drew. So we had so this was a Catholic wedding in a Catholic church. Oh yeah. <laughs> we we all played a a competition. We we guessed how many times you have to stand up and sit down during the Catholic wedding. Our our initial was over under five. 
and then we each we each ended up just just picking our answers. So, sir, we're we're gonna give you an opportunity over or under five, and then give us your exact answer. Ooh, fancy Catholic wedding with two hundred people over five. That's what most of us thought. Less. Me, me, and Krems are picked exactly five. We thought it wasn't gonna be. I thought we would, thought it would be exactly five. I went with eight, dude. I I, I was a little ambitious. The <laughs> the correct answer was three. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's nice. That's conscientious of you, I guess. Was your Eucharist? I I don't even know if that means. No, the body, the body and blood of Christ. When you eat the crackers and drink the wine. Oh, okay. We we were standing up for some extended sections, though. Yeah. No, I thought there was going to be a Eucharist. I should have read the you know the schedule more closely because then we would have definitely stood up five times. And there was definitely an extremely strange Bible verse that they read that's in the Catholic Bible, but uh. The Catholic Bible versus what the other Bible? There was some some book that I'd never heard of before, so I I looked it up because it was in the you know little the little pamphlet. It was added the Catholic Church added it in like three or four hundred A.D. Oh, oh, interesting. Tobia, Tobia. It was a really weird one about like could have came out of the Handmaid's Tale. The whole time I was thinking like blessed be blessed be the fruit because it was talking about how like <laughs> you know the. The man gets, you know, the, the woman is part of the man. It was came out of Adam's rib and, and God made the woman for man. And the woman gives herself to the man and the man takes her not for lust, but to be his property or forever or something, you know, just weird shit, man. I was in a wedding where I was a groomsman. I was also a reader. Um, everyone else did a Bible verse. I did a uh, Pablo Neruda sonnet, which I still think is the best one. Um, but then the guy who officiated the ceremony was an ordained minister, but it was like the guy's little from his fraternity, like his little brother. And he brought up divorce, like in the oh, ceremony. Shit. Yeah, it was, it was real awkward. That's weird. Did he bring up the stats? Like 46% chance this couple does not make it till death do them part. <laughs> no, it was more like God hates divorce. So don't do that. And if you're thinking about divorcing, you shouldn't get married because God hates divorce. And I was like, that's good advice, man. Should have gave it to him probably like a week before that, though. Yeah, yeah. You're not in front of all your guests. Yeah, it's like the wedding singer. Something you should have told me yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Jimbo, tell him our other bet. 200 guests. Over or under half a black person? Uh, Over. No, I I got that one right. I I went with zero. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Uh, Maybe we didn't see one either. But I I wasn't looking like aggressively. I looked, dude. Okay. I looked. There was no black <laughs> We had we had the magical Miss Mo. So we have a half half a half a Latin person, right? Yeah. We had um we had an Indian <laughs> that looked about probably half Indian, maybe even a quarter Indian, and then we did have three or four Asians. So you know you know it was a little you know we had some diversity out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think about my wedding. There's about 120 people. And there were probably 105 white people, maybe like 108. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we had discussed my wedding. So so I actually, I, <laughs> my invite list was extremely diverse, man. I had, I had eight of like, or no, five of 12 invites were, were to my, to black friends of mine. Unfortunately, n- none of them made it. My, my <laughs> only guest was uh chinese which actually blended really well with all of helen's korean family so <laughs> you don't have even noticed right 
No, they, yeah, they're like, there, there was one of Helen's friends from college had a white girlfriend. So of course everyone thought that she was like my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jimbo, I love your wedding stories. Um, yeah, I had, I had two black friends who got invites. One of them had to cancel <laughs> at the very last minute and I actually went to his wedding, um, last weekend. It was a very cool wedding because his family from New Orleans came and then the bride's family was from Northern California, but they, um, the father was Indian. And so it was like a really interesting blended wedding, um, that included like lots of different, um, things with their vows, but mostly like a lot of the culture came through with the food, which was awesome. Yeah. Shout out to the hot brown. Have you heard of a hot brown? No. What is that? It's not a sexual position. That's what I thought it was, but it's not. Nope. It's not. It's a Louisville <laughs> I mean, classic. it might be. Uh, it's some sort of like toast with parmesan and turkey and bacon and eggs. I don't even know. Like it's creamy. It's delicious. Maybe those are all my judgy wedding questions being done. Um, oh, what was their first dance? Lean on me. Screw you, Jimbo. I don't remember. Oh, okay. I thought you were like admonishing my question. I think it's sweet. It wasn't lean on me, was it? I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do. Let's stay together. That's what it is. I was fangirling. The lead singer was fine. I was into it. Master of open bars. The lead singer was not fine. (laughs) (laughs) He was cute. He was a zaddy. Uh, James went to bed like 10 minutes after dinner ended. So he doesn't know how things escalated. Okay. Master of open bars. Exactly. Her. She thought it was only 10 minutes. Okay. Oh, dessert. Ah, uh, dessert. Tell me about dessert. I don't even think I... I had like a couple bites of the cake. They put it out while I was up at the bar. <laughs> Never been a fan of wedding cake. And then finally, was there a midnight snack? No. Well, someone eventually ordered pizza at like 3 in the morning. Oh. Come on, Audrey. It's, oh, well. <laughs> and there was popsicles. <laughs> I didn't get one, though. I wish I did. Was everything bourbon-themed? There was a lot of bourbon. I that that Fuck was my yeah. drink of choice the a whole night. A lot of bourbon, yeah. So like, I went to that wedding when Audrey uh, and I went together, and like, I stayed at her parents' house, and her parents were fucking awesome because we drank bourbon the whole weekend, um, and I just decided that was the only alcohol I would drink while I was there. And then the wedding we went to also had a strong bourbon theme. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, shout out to Audrey's parents. Oh, I guess we're saying her name. Are we supposed to be saying her name? Past the point of no no return now. Well, you can edit it out. Yeah, we we call it the praise. Eighteen percent of our audience is our return Peace Corps friends, that's so they true. want to know too. That's true. Yeah, and for anyone that's following Forrest's life through us, his girlfriend <laughs> did not make him. It was uh, <laughs> a technicality. He yeah. he he misunderstood how Facebook works. He didn't want it to be a post, but it was, and he wasn't trying to share it with the world. But he did. She's not a psychopath. Cool. <laughs> And hopefully she's a listener now. That'd be cool. I look forward to meeting her someday. Yeah. Unless they break up. That's fair, too. <laughs> well, it seems pretty serious if uh, if he changed his status. Yeah, Forrest is Facebook official with someone. So, I mean, that's that's a step. Let's call that a show because I'm going to have an interesting task ahead of me. All right. Um, every day I'm hoistling. Drew out. Every day I'm hoistling. Mo out. Every day we hoistling. Jimbo out.